Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is David Barrett. David is the founder of David Barrett Partners, a leading executive search firm focused exclusively on buy-side asset management. Prior to founding his eponymous firm in 2005, David spent 19 years in the search business, including long stints at Russell Reynolds Associates and Hydric and Struggles. He began his career as a self-professed failed equity research analyst in the early 1980s, and as a graduate of Yale University and the Columbia University Business School. In just the last two years, David's firm has completed searches for the chief investment officer positions at Harvard University, Dartmouth University, 
the University of Texas Investment Management Company, TIFF, and the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, each multi-billion dollar pools of assets. Our conversation explores the search process for senior asset allocators, including the business of search, the interview process, governance structures, and trends. Anyone with a thought to navigating their career will pick up nuggets of insight throughout the conversation. Now that the summer's over, it's time to reconnect with friends and colleagues. And what better way than discussing capital allocators by the water cooler, and then heading back to your computer to write a review on iTunes. Thanks for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with David Bear. David, thanks for joining me. I love coming to your office. I feel like I'm at home. Why don't you describe what we're looking at on the walls? Because this is really, really important stuff. Well, Ted, thanks for coming by. And like a lot of recruiters, I don't have a lot of outside interest or highly cultured, but the walls here are uh, filled with Yankee memorabilia, which is also what my house looks like. So it's very consistent with my uh, out-of-the-office interests. There's not a lot of extra space between yeah, no. <laughs> the good news is, what it looks The like good news is I financially I've run out of wall space, so I don't, I, there's not much you know, else I have to do. And my wife's pleased with that, too. Yeah. So, we, and is there any theme to this? I mean, every... Everyone I grew up watching is represented. We got a Mariano Rivera jersey. We got Thurman Munson. Of course, we got the boss. All kinds of cool well, stuff. Well, my core interests are the the seventy seven, seventy eight World Series champs. When that was, I won't date myself too badly, but let's just say I remember that vividly in terms of growing up. So, but the entire Yankee span of greats is covered here and at home. So, I mean, are you Starting full on? Do we have Chris Chambliss, Willie Randolph, Bucky Dent, Greg Nettles, the whole bit here? I have every, <laughs> I have a signed ball of every Yankee who played on the 77 and 78 team. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So that, like, okay, that just brings, we had to lay that out because I've talked to too many Boston Red Sox fans on the con- in the course of this, and that just doesn't do it for me. Why don't you talk a little bit about search and in particular how did you get along a path to be sitting where you are today well it started by being a really subpar equity analyst <laughs> <laughs> was that out of college yeah, yeah so out of uh at a college and business school i was an equity analyst and my career uh peaked at trust company of the west in the late 80s as an electric utilities analyst and quickly learned that my attention span was not up to what it was going to take to be a a really needle-moving equity analyst. So I joined uh, Russell Reynolds in the late 80s uh, in Los Angeles, and it was really in the context I loved the investment business, but I realized I was much more interested in the in the relationship and people side of the business. And I've been doing it with, uh, did it with Russell Reynolds and Hydric for 17 years. And uh, this week is marks the 12th anniversary of DBP. So we are a global buy-side shop, New York, Boston, London, and Hong Kong. And all we do is buy-side recruiting, a lot in the asset owner space, endowments, foundations, family offices, plan sponsors, OCIOs. Our historical core business has been the third-party money management business, uh, investments and distribution, C-suite recruiting. Why don't we start talking a little bit about how does this business work? as a business. So maybe walk through like one transaction or one kind of economic unit in the search business. Well, it's professional services business. So we work project by project and 
The good part of that is that everything's always new and different and interesting. The bad part of that, and that's I'm speaking from sort of the uh, the founding partner perspective, is I've got four offices and 25 people, and we literally don't know who's paying our bills yeah, in four no months. Recurring revenue. Yeah. yeah. So we, you know, every January we, we we crank it up again. But that so does McKinsey, and so does all the law firms, and so I think one of the important things in terms of longevity in this business. Uh, is just being very client-focused and very results-focused and not worrying about the business itself. And that's why I like having a small private boutique versus when I left Hydric 14 years ago, you know, a public company where it, was, it, was, it wasn't client-focused. It was you, you needed to keep growing the business. And a professional services firm, it's not an infinitely scalable business. And even in the ENF world, I can't do every CIO search. I mean, I've had to pass on two or three very good CIO searches in the last two years just because it's a conflict with our existing search base. So you have to, you know, being boutique, client-focused, it's still, you know, it's it's day-to-day, hand-to-hand combat. There's lots of good firms out there that we compete with, both small, medium, and large, especially in the ENF family office world. We, we will be part of a bake-off, and... We either get called to be part of that bake-off or we call and beg to be part of that bake-off. Yeah. So in that process, is it a price competition or are you sort of differentiating based on experience and skill and prices roughly the same across your competitors? The clients that we like to work with, and it's, I'd say it's 90% of the time, it's not price at all. I'd say that you know the, the, the sophisticated and appropriate users of search – they will pick a firm and then they'll negotiate the price. And the pricing is, you know, going to be pretty consistent across. Yeah. I mean, do you, in in an attempt to be kind of client focused, customer centric business, how do you think about aligning your incentives with your client? And where do you see some search firms make that work the right way? And where might it go awry? It's a great question. One alignment is you have fewer clients, and so you have fewer off-limits, so you have more access in the market. That's one alignment. Another alignment is in a boutique, We sh- because it's not we're not volume-oriented, we can be doing fewer searches, and if we control our costs well, the economics should be just as good because we don't have all the overhead of a big firm. So if we're doing fewer searches, by definition, our probability for success is going to be higher. We should be doing higher-quality work, more thorough work because we're doing less fewer searches. And that's, again, a boutique can do that if it's properly structured. Yeah. The other part of that is pricing. And the, and, the, and the business has evolved a lot in the last 15 years where I think users of search are much more savvy. The days are gone where you can just say, you know, we're going to charge a third of the first year's total comp. So, but we start, we built our firm on the premise that we never did an open-ended one-third. We will discuss with the client going in a fair compensation range, and we will either do a flat fee or we will cap our fees at the mid-range of a certain comp range that we think we can be successful for the client. The notion being if if you're getting paid a third of the comp, your incentive is to jack up the comp, which is against the interest of the client. You know, when, when we're telling a client that our candidate has to have another... 10% pop and comp when they're like, well, that's because you're saying that because you know, you're going to you get, get a third of that. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's just a, it's in built in non-alignment, with, which we were never comfortable with. So you've now won the search 
I'm really curious to walk through what that process looks like, you know, for me with an eye towards, hey, how similar or different is this from an allocator looking at a manager or a manager looking at a stock or an executive team or something like that? So why don't you start with how does the, the sourcing process begin? How do you frame out what you're looking for? Well, I think the first thing is because 75% of this is cultural fit, spending is as much time with the existing team that's as appropriate, but probably as importantly, the administration of the university or the foundation, or and then the, as most importantly, the board. So the search committee and the investment committee members of the board who are going to really have an impact on this hire and really get a feel for what's important to them and uh, what are their key drivers and what must-haves and nice-to-haves in terms of the of terms of the spec and the culture and and just how the organization works. So once you've done that sort of due diligence up front. How long does that take? Typically, you might be talking to 12 to 15 board members, uh, not to mention the internal staff. So we'll do that over the first couple of weeks while we're also doing our research and getting into the market. Um, but it, you know, it, it's important to put that time up in. For the investment committee and the search committee, or even the non-search committee members to feel bought into the process and they've been included and they've been heard. So there's lots of good reasons to do it sure. in terms of getting to the right place and a successful outcome and people understanding how, they, how you got there. And then it's really you know, a combination of art and science. So what's the science? Let's start there. The science is really the systematic review of the marketplace. So if we're talking about a CIO search, you know, there's typically three buckets. There's the Sitting CIOs of equally or smaller sized organizations, you know, across all the different asset owner buckets, family office, OCIO, plant sponsor, endowment foundation. And, and by the, in, in the context of the, your earlier conversations, you'll have you'll have fine tuned that a little bit. And then the third bucket is the strong number twos in that in the, in the related asset owner area. And then the third sort of mo- most gray bucket is the best athletes. And that typically um, will, you know, First of all, you'll get, a, you'll get a sense for how open the search committee is to best athletes. Where we encourage it the most is when we're doing uh, CIO searches, typically for colleges, typically in non-money center locations. Right. So, for instance, University of Florida, we just finished Utimco in Austin, University of Washington in Seattle. You look for alums of that organization or people that have or you maybe from the from the region or have reasons to be down there because it just it, it that the whole relocation piece is always a tricky part of the process right. and then that, so that's still it's still as part of that systematic review especially the first two buckets we go through and we really try to match in terms of ex- appropriate experience set as well as you know the scientific part and in, in the cio search really comes down to track record and uh looking at relative performance it's a little harder to do with the strong number twos, but you have to look at the overall organization and their success and what that person's role has been in that, that how do, process. How do you think about a, a track record in that context when and one of the common themes I get from, from doing, having these conversations, is right. conversations generally is that any institution has its own risk tolerance, has its own probably appropriate asset allocation strategy, which will drive uh, the lion's share of the return. And what it might be for Yale, it might be completely different for Wake Forest. And as a result of that, if you're just looking at the returns, you know, someone who is at a less risk-tolerant institution may have done better than someone who has higher returns. How do you think about calibrating that? That's probably the trickiest part of what we do, and, and, and it, all that has to be factored in. We don't have the quantitative research here to be able to fact do all that really detailed factoring yeah. so it, it but you have to, and the investment committee will also 
help us on that once we get you know deeper into the search. Yeah. But but you can't take to your point, you can't take just standalone performance. It's not apples to apples. And so let's turn to the art side. And so what are those key components of the art in, in vetting candidates? I think you have to look at just style and cultural fit and then and then career motivation. Where is someone in his or her career? Why would this make sense? And then the cultural fit, you know, their team, their people management skills, their team building skills, their ability to manage committees, and then comparing that to what the what the needs of the of the client are. Yeah. And also when we're in that third bucket, best athletes, you know, really thinking creatively around where could where could people be that might fit this this mandate, and and that's because it's I mean, candidly, you know, anybody who's reasonably competent in search will know who the you know top one hundred CIOs are across endowments and foundations and OCIOs, and they may not be as well versed as we are at the second level in terms of the up and comers because we do a lot of asset class stuff, but. That's, you know, the, I think where you can be really adding value is in terms of your knowledge of the market and whether it's the, the alternative space, public, you know, hedge funds or private equity or solutions businesses within third-party managers or, you know, the, the family office world is a lot, a lot more fragmented and hard to get your hand, hands around. Being, being able to add value in terms of finding people in those areas you know, that's, that's important. Talk a little bit about the kind of the due diligence process. So you have a search, you've, you've gone through this process with the client of understanding what that roster of candidates looks like, the three buckets, and now you start bringing people in. Do they meet you first? Do they go right to the client? And how much time do you spend? Well, we always spend, you know, at least a couple hours with candidates before they would go in to meet the client. Our uh, calibration process is, you know, initial phone screening, then the in-person meeting. Again, we never, critical to our credibility in the marketplace is not compromising confidentiality of candidates. Having said that, given our network, we're typically not introducing someone to a client, even after we've spent time with them in person and over the phone, without some sort of informal, highly confidential third-party calibration in terms of our network in the marketplace around where they've worked, who's worked for them, who they work for. And again, it's incredibly sensitive because, you know, we'd be out of business if we were compromising candidate confidentiality. But again, that's one of the advantages of being in the business for a long time and having six or seven of us who just have that kind of network. Yeah. So talk about the art of interviewing. What Are there things that you've developed over the years that when you're in front of someone, you're, you're trying to elicit out that you didn't know five or ten years ago? It's a great question. Um, I'm uh, more old school in the context of I really interview around qualitative fit. I can do sort of the more quantitative analysis on the side, uh, you know, away from the interview. So I do not do high-pressure interrogation-type interviews. My goal, uh, I let Elizabeth Havens and Ann Kaiser take care of that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Good to have uh, partners. Yeah, yeah. No, my goal is to really build credibility and rapport with the candidate and get them to talk about themselves. And I feel I can learn a lot about someone when I get them talking about themselves both professionally and personally. In this point in our evolution, we, we have a pretty good sense for where people fit into the, the marketplace and their backgrounds and their experiences. So then do you take that as a, a filter and you have however many candidates and imagine that the, whoever the decision maker is, the board or maybe someone leading the search, 
will meet a small subset of those people. Right. So, again, every search committee is a little bit different, but typically, I think what what clients are really paying us for is to have some level of conviction around the people that we are suggesting based on all the work we've done. So we'll, we'll give eight to ten. You know, we'll typically show eight to ten profiles. Say. We'd recommend you start with these four or five, but we'll get their feedback and we'll get their input. The key to a successful search is a partnership with the investment committee or the search committee and getting their input and feedback. I mean, it's just like a a CIO would, the, the most successful CIOs are leveraging their investment committees. A good search, you are leveraging your search committee and right. your investment committee. They, they know as much about the, and in many cases they'll, they'll have, especially in terms of unique insights potentially into the how that person thinks as an investor, which is the hardest thing for us to really calibrate. I mean, they can have very good insights in that. And then when it comes to a decision-making process, let's just pick out a university. There's so many different potential constituents, right? So you have the you have the investment committee, a search committee probably within that. You probably have an existing team. You then have the university itself. You might have alumni with interest. How do you sort of triangulate on who, how you get that decision made and who's involved? Well, a successful search, you get all those other constituencies, you get all their input up front so they feel included. And then you have a really tight search committee of three, maybe four people, and they tightly control the process. And they have the trust of the of the investment committee and the board and all the other outside constituencies, including the chancellor or the president or the different alumni constituencies. And then the from that, you, you need to have a really tight, involved search committee. And typically, the lead guy on that search committee is, he and I are going to be attached at the hip. And that's where the real day-to-day communication is going. And he, but the rest of the search committee is also very involved. And then from that, they're the ones that really get to two or three finalists. And then they, with the confidence of the, the rest of the investment committee, will recommend two to three folks that then go to the broader the key members of the board or uh, obviously of the administration in the, in the case of an endowment. So once a C, I'm curious about how you think about success because a lot of what you described in a totally different context could be the right. same process for hiring an investment manager. Yep. You go through the process, you, you think you have the right person. In this case, you wire money, you have them, you know, there's a contract and then they perform or they don't perform. And how, how do you – do you evaluate over time the success of the people you've had in the roles? We should do a better job of tracking the success of our placements. You know, on the flip side – but, it, you know, it's – when we're looking at candidates or when we're measuring the success of the people we've placed, you can certainly get a sense for how they're doing in terms of the shaping of their team – if, if that was required and how they're dealing doing with communicating with the board and building confidence with the board. But assuming those things are going well, which are things you can measure, you know, as you know better than I do, you know, the, you're turning around, you're, you're, you're reshaping, repositioning, or turning around, you know, aircraft carriers. So I think you take your, really your first breath on the, and the calibration point, maybe at three years, but it's, I think five years for me is the proof of the pudding. And it's interesting, uh, you know, if you say, what is, how do you measure success in the in ENF world? A lot, it really is continuity and stability. When we were doing the 
Stanford CEO search, seven or eight institutions that they compared themselves to that were ahead of them on a 10-year basis, on, their ten, on their ten, in terms of their 10-year number, all those CIOs had been in place for 10 years. Right. You know, and so that, that consistency and that stability uh, and singularity of, of investment philosophy is, is, is critical. So it's hard to judge, and you know, so the, the ultimate thing is how they do in, in performance-wise relative to their benchmarks. That's hard to track until about the fifth year. But clearly, the personality and management fit has to be there, too. Yeah. So I want to turn to a couple of stories. I'm sure you've got more than a few. No stories. <laughs> no stories. <laughs> no names will protect the names. What was the single easiest search you ever did? No search is easy. Of course, I'm going to say that. No search is easy. I will say the, the most enjoyable searches are, are where you have a really focused, engaged search committee, and especially the head of the search committee. Because that's really your day-to-day contact. And if they're engaged and focused, it keeps you motivated and, you know, it leads to, you know, the highest probability for success. And, and none of these searches are easy. If you wanted to quantify it, I mean, the larger, the, s- the more visible the position, you know, there's fewer people that you have to target. So, you know, over the last three years, Stanford, Harvard, Utimco that universe of candidates is going to look a lot different and candidates is going to be a lot smaller subset than doing something for a you know a three to four billion dollar does that mean they they move quicker because they're just fewer um they can i mean for instance harvard was the shortest search we ever did it was two and a half months i mean and typically these take four or five six months but i'd say in terms of intensity I mean, they're, but they're not, they're not easier. They're just more intense and high pressure. <laughs> so somewhere along the way, you must have had a client that you accepted that you personally would never have wanted to work for. <laughs> that doesn't mean there isn't a great fit for them. It just might not resonate with you personally. So h- how do you address that process in finding a fit and then convincing someone, if that's what it takes, to take a role that you may think is a great fit for them, but you know in your heart like there's something that gives you the heebie-jeebies about the client? Right. I say a couple of things. We're not picking our clients per se. I, I will say, and I'm proud that we've gotten to a certain point in our evolution that the majority of the time we want to make sure we're, we're getting chosen by clients who we feel we can be successful for. And we're not going to probably actively compete for a search where we don't think we can be successful. And a lot of that time, it'll be because of the, you know, what we view as the personality fit or the business model. But it, it often just comes down to personality. And I won't generalize, but that's the reason we don't do a lot of hedge fund work. Okay, so there must have been a time. <laughs> there must yeah. have been a time before you had the luxury of having some say and choosing who the clients were, where you learned that lesson through your own experience. What did that feel like? It's brutal. And I will say in 25 plus years, I have only given money back once. And that was to get out of a relationship. And yeah. literally, and it never even hit my screen to do it except for one time. And uh, not surprisingly, it was in the alts world in a hedge fund of funds where, you know, just please take my money, no moss. And how long, <laughs> how long did I'm really just... and that And that was at a point where, you know, lull in the market, we took on a tricky search where the person that was known to be, it was easy in retrospect to say, why, why did we do that? Yeah. So, and how long did yeah. it go before you cried uncle? It went through 
30 candidates, someone being hired and someone being fired two weeks into the job. Wow. And then wanting, and then, <laughs> and then they wanted you to do it again. Yeah, they wanted to redo it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, again, we're in a people business. And as you know, there's a lot of interesting personalities in all parts of the investment world, which is part of what makes it interesting. Is there a placement that you're most proud of? I love to look back and see, you know, a Landis Zimmerman who's been at Howard Hughes since 04 or Keith Ferguson who's been at Washington since 05. Those folks that have really made a difference over a five to 10 year basis. And, and those are the ones that, you, you, you know, you feel like, wow, you, you made a difference. What do you think's been your biggest mistake? Make lots of mistakes and you learn every day. I think your biggest mistakes come when you try to take on too much and you just get spread too thin and your delivery and quality, your, your delivery suffers. And that's the balancing act in our business. And do you think about your business in terms of trends in asset management? So today people are talking a lot about quantitative investing and quantitative placements. Do you think about, well, that might be an area of growth and change. Therefore, we should be thinking about those types of searches. I think about it all the time, and especially in the context of we're very lucky because we have a large, I call it, my, I call it the captive capital clients, So because the asset owner business will always be there because those people always are going to have to put money to work. So whether it's our sovereign wealth clients in the Middle East, whether it's the growing family office businesses, whether it's the ENF world, whether it's plant sponsor community, that's a great stable base of business which a lot of search firms don't have. But at the same time, you know, you want to make sure you're well positioned with some, you know, firms like Vanguard. You want to be making sure you have a nice blend between active, fundamental, and quantitative. All that stuff has to be taken into consideration. That's kind of interesting to bring Vanguard into the mix because outside of Vanguard, maybe BlackRock at times, your pool of work is in some form of active management. And the entire active management ecosystem is under fee pressure. And I'm curious if that trickles down to your business. Do your clients start to question your fees or do they still say, you know, the value we're getting for the service is appropriate? Well, I'd say the the fee pressure is ongoing. I think it's and it's really less that's less secular tied to what asset strategies are popular either short term or long term on a cyclical or secular basis, but more the users of search becoming much more savvy around how to utilize search firms. There's always fee pressure. There's a lot of competition, and there's a lot of the big firms that are volume-oriented that have to, will give you give fee breaks. And so if I you know, get back to the model, I think retained search is going to be increasingly at the very senior levels. Where And, and so I think boutiques are much better focused boutiques because you don't have the overhead. You don't have to have as many searches. And you will be perceived as adding value at the senior levels where we work, where you can't do it through internal search or, or LinkedIn, and, and you don't have to worry about volume. So, right. I mean, so a flexible, nimble boutique working at the top in a very focused area, I mean, I think that's, you know, that's what I'm betting on. How have you thought about the use of technology? I mean, obviously, LinkedIn, broadly defined in search, broadly defined across all levels has been a pretty influential factor maybe not as much at the senior levels, but how do you use technology differently today than what you may have in the past? You know, it's, it's another great question, especially in terms of the answer in that you know, we wonder for the, for the folks who've been doing this way too long, 
you know, we wonder how did we find candidates in the nineties? <laughs> you know, yellow pages. Yeah, you know, especially in the context of equity analysts and sales guys. But it was much in terms of the transparency of the candidate universes. There was much less transparency. How did we get searches done? So yes, there's tons of information. You know, third-party databases that we can access now that are helpful. At, you know, in, in, in terms of gathering information at all levels, including CEO work and CIO work. But the, the, the reason I say it's an interesting in terms of the answer, the length of time to complete searches has not shortened because it is a people business. It is, it's based on personal relationships, meeting people in person, building trust, establishing credibility both with the, the search firm and the candidate and then the candidate with the with the clients, and that's and you know the, a career move is the biggest thing people do on a, obviously on a professional basis. You can't rush that; that takes time, and you just that that's not technology is never going to turn that process at the level we work into a six week process. It just doesn't work that way. What are the biggest trends you're seeing in kind of the CIO space? Maybe it's the among the candidates that you see today. I think the the biggest challenge today is the scarcity of talent. I think the reason you've seen so much, so many changing seats over the last several years is that because of the increased transparency around performance, and then the, so then they get the relative comparisons where, you know, through, you know, the press has turned this into an arms race, which is unfortunate in my view because it doesn't have to be an arms race. I mean, this is not a um, zero-sum game. Everyone can be successful, so you don't have to turn it into that type of thing. So people become more introverted and less sharing, and and, and it's a problem. But as a result of that, coming out of the crisis, investment committees and boards have been forced to take a much more fiduciary-minded view of their roles. And so performance on an absolute relative basis for you know from t- 10 to 15 was suddenly looked at much more carefully cuz they're hearing from all their alumni networks well how come we're you know not doing uh, why are we underperforming Yale or whatever it is right so as a result where you know 2005 2006 you know boards were I don't want to say they were mailing it in but there was just a lot less scrutiny on performance so these boards have been forced to take action so that's led to you know, we're doing a, a large CIO search right now, and they're concerned that you know, the, have they, you know, has the market been too picked over over the last three years? You know, for a six or seven billion dollar CIO role, and that's that is a result of you know boards being much more involved and taking a much harder look at, and then making making difficult decisions if the performance isn't there. But as a result, so the challenges have been to really continue to find new and interesting talent in the context of filling those seats. The demand for world-class CIOs who can make a difference in any of the different asset owner bases is is growing dramatically. And, and, and frankly, there's a lot of good talent coming from the third-party side that needs places to go. If a board takes on that fiduciary responsibility more seriously than they had in the past, and they're still a little bit disconnected from the pool of candidates, right? so that's why you play the role you do, they can go through a process. You can have your smaller CIO bucket, your number two bucket, your best athlete's bucket. From the outside, the perspective is always square peg, square hole. And the more you have people focused on that fiduciary responsibility, do they still do they tend to gravitate more towards, well, let's just get somebody who looks and feels like someone in the seat than they had in the past? Great point. 80% of the time, 
the search committee will say, we want to like broad brush. We want to see everybody in all the different buckets. You get down to the finish line. Oh, we got a sitting CIO who's going to have done this for five years, proven track record, and I can sleep at night because we brought in a proven player. 80% of the time, that's the way they'll go. It's not just the rare search committee or investment committee, it, but it's it's the rare institution that is at a point in their in their growth where you know, they they really are going to be comfortable doing that if unless they have to. And I'll give you examples of you know typically where where you have to do it, and I think it's worked out great in a lot of different cases is either smaller organizations or so I'm saying you know sort of sub one billion or organizations that have you know champagne taste and beer budget. So like <laughs> re- retirement plans and where they have so so they they are by definition they're not going to get the sitting CIO or even potentially the strong number 2 so they'll go out and find a really good equity portfolio manager or someone who's you know done a hedge fund of funds or something like yeah. that well let's turn to some closing questions what is your favorite thing to do that's a complete waste of time well it's easy that's uh Sitting on the couch watching the Yankees. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, 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 that is no not a waste of time. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a no-brainer. <laughs> Most people listening might think that is. So, what yeah. do you what do you think right now as we're getting into the dog I days? I think uh, that I'm really excited about next year. You know, the young kids are going to be you know, that much further along and healthy. I think this year we're not really built to, you know, maybe get into the wild card game, but we're not going to make a serious run. There's too many good teams. I mean, as an example, I this is the first year in since Jeter retired that I've been, I've been excited about watching and going to games. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's Dodgers to watch. look awfully good, though. Dodgers and Astros, crazy. you know. Yeah. Let's not, right, let's we'll, not, we'll let's see. not burn our... You you know, get, Billy Bean says, you get in the playoffs and anything can happen. So no, it's true. We'll, we'll it's see. True. You know, we've got I just some don't think we have... I don't, yeah, I don't think we have the pitching to hold up to that. Well, yeah. you know, Sonny Gray. We'll, I like we'll Sonny. See. Garcia was a total waste. Yeah, that hasn't looked <laughs> yeah. so good. <laughs> and so, and what about Judge? Is he going to turn this around? Or? I think Judge is somewhere between a 179 hitter and a 330 hitter. I think he's, we just he's don't know which 240, yet. 35 to 40, 80 to 100. But he, you know, he's just too too many holes in his swing. Too big a guy. Just didn't, didn't look that way the first half of the no, year. It's kind of no. incredible. I think the home run derby should be banned, but that's well. It's, yeah. it's become the Sports Illustrated jinx. Yeah, it has. It's unbelievable. Yeah. He looks so good. At, all right. Well, oh, I have to ask yeah. this question because I, I have a feeling I know what the answer is going to be. What was your favorite sports moment as a participant or a fan? Actually, my favorite sports moment. Well, my second most favorite was being at the Bucky Dent game in 1978. Oh it, yeah, at Fenway, driving up from New Haven um, on a Sunday night and being there Monday. But my favorite was, and the helmet's right behind you, sitting with my kids and a bunch of good friends watching the Giants beat the undefeated Patriots in the uh, 08 <laughs> Super Bowl. Boy, there's a now, lot of rivalry yeah, coming out that, of this I one, mean, yeah. As I told my kids, um, you know, I feel bad for you guys because you're in your teens and you've just seen the most exciting, from a New York fan's perspective, the most exciting win you'll ever see in your lives. And, you know, I, I can ride this out fine I got you know but you guys have 50 more years <laughs> now that was by far the coolest event uh, what phrase did your mother or father repeat to you over and over again that most stuck with you I think the lesson they taught me wasn't really a phrase but to treat people with respect and uh, I, I've just I see I saw, I saw them do that forever and that that's always Canley I think that has really helped me in my business what are you most proud of my kids, first of all, my three boys, and uh, I'm proud of uh, what we built here. I mean, there's a lot of boutiques that are viewed as a one-man band, 
And that's a very successful model. And there's a lot of my competitors that do very well with a man and a dog. But I've really been proud of, uh, over the last 12 years, really building a global enterprise where it's not just me. And we've got great folks doing great work around the around the world. And it's unique. You know, every firm says this. But we, candidly, in the search business, it's, it's really hard to live by it, which is don't hire assholes. Because there's a lot of people in search that are, it's all about them. You know, there's, it's, you know it's, a, it's a professional services and it's a uh, revenue business. So to find people that are, have to bring the same client focus are long-term greedy. They want to be successful. They're ambitious. But they know how to balance that in terms of the quality of the work and how they treat clients. That's hard to find. So to be able to build that and find folks as far away as Hong Kong and London who buy into that, I mean – you know, so far, so good. I'm really proud of that. Is there a book or two you've read that had an, just a meaningful influence on how you thought about things, about your life, about your work? An interesting book I read recently was, um, and it, it resonated, one, because my brother does a lot of, had done a lot of work for Nike, but uh, Phil Knight's Shoe Dog. Yeah, really and good. And book. how he built that business and the risks he took and the faith and the, uh, you know, just the personal confidence he had to have. You know, and again, and again, totally different scale, but and the trust he put in people and the team he built. That I thought that was that was a very interesting sort of life lesson in terms of sticking with your what you believe in and, and, and doing you know and focusing on quality and doing the right thing. And I thought that was cool. What do you know now that you wish you knew ten years ago? It probably more like twenty years ago. <laughs> I, I think it's sort of subtle and, and nuanced, but you just learn. You learn what you're good at. You learn, you know, you, you learn how to appropriately add value and manage clients, and that just comes with experience. And and then that come, I think, and you build that quiet confidence. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, you know, I was when I'd come back from Singapore, I was working for Russell Reynolds in New York. I mean, I had no idea how little I knew, and and so now I can come at it with a, a much more genuine, confident perspective. <laughs> All right, last question. It's your waning days. You are behind the dugout at Yankee Stadium with your grandkids looking Wait, back on your life. Yeah, I'm not that old. I'm not that Great grandkids. <laughs> what advice would you give yourself today? I think it gets back to just being fair and honest and straightforward in every, in every walk of life and treat people, as I said earlier, treat people with respect and you work hard, you do the right things, you treat people well. You don't cut corners. Good things should happen. Good good things should happen. Dave, thanks so much for taking the thanks, time. Really Dad. enjoyed it. Thanks for including me. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time. Next time.